Chapter thirty nine of the Arabian Nights Entertainments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale. The Arabian Nights Entertainments by Andrew Lang. Chapter thirty nine. Prince Bahman, who, remembering the directions of the old woman, had been since sunrise on the lookout for someone, recognized the old man at once to be a dervish. He dismounted from his horse and bowed low before the holy man, saying by way of a greeting, My father, may your days be long in the land, and may all your wishes be fulfilled. The dervish did his best to reply, but his moustache was so thick that his words were hardly intelligible, and the prince, perceiving what was the matter, took a pair of scissors from his saddle pockets and requested permission to cut off some of the moustache, as he had a question of great importance to ask the dervish. The dervish made a sign that he might do as he liked, and when a few inches of his hair and beard had been pruned all around, the prince assured the holy man that he would hardly believe how much younger he looked. The dervish smiled at his compliments and thanked him for what he had done. Let me show you my gratitude for making me more comfortable by telling me what I can do for you. Gentle dervish, replied Prince Baman, I come from far, and I seek the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water. I know that they are to be found somewhere in these parts, but I am ignorant of the exact spot. Tell me, I pray you, if you can, so that I may not have travelled on a useless quest. While he was speaking, the prince observed a change in the countenance of the dervish, who waited for some time before he made reply. My lord, he said at last, I do know the road for which you ask, but your kindness and the friendship I have conceived for you make me loathe to point it out. But why not? inquired the prince. What danger can there be? The very greatest danger, answered the dervish. Other men as brave as you have ridden down this road, and have put me that question. I did my best to turn them also from their purpose, but it was of no use. Not one of them would listen to my words, and not one of them came back. Be warned in time, and seek to go no further. I am grateful to you for your interest in me, said Prince Baman, and for the advice you have given, though I cannot follow it. But what dangers can there be in the adventure which courage and a good sword cannot meet? And suppose, answered the dervish, that your enemies are invisible. How then? Nothing will make me give it up, replied the prince, and for the last time I ask you to tell me where I am to go. When the dervish saw that the prince's mind was made up, he drew a ball from a bag that lay near him and held it out. If it must be so, he said with a sigh, take this, and when you have mounted your horse, throw the ball in front of you. It will roll on till it reaches the foot of a mountain, and when it stops, you will stop also. You will then throw the bridle on your horse's neck without any fear of his straying, and will dismount. On each side you will see vast heaps of big black stones, and will hear a multitude of insulting voices. But pay no heed to them, and above all, beware of ever turning your head. If you do, you will instantly become a black stone like the rest. For those stones are in reality men like yourself, who have been on the same quest and have failed. As I fear that you may fail also. 
If you manage to avoid this pitfall and to reach the top of the mountain, you will find there the talking bird in a splendid cage, and you can ask of him where you are to seek the singing tree and the golden water. That is all I have to say. You know what you have to do and what to avoid, but if you are wise you will think of it no more, but return whence you have come. The prince smilingly shook his head, and thanking the dervish once more, he sprang on his horse and threw the ball before him. The ball rolled along the road so fast that Prince Baman had much difficulty in keeping up with it, and it never relaxed its speed till the foot of the mountain was reached. Then it came to a sudden halt, and the prince at once got down and flung the bridle on his horse's neck. He paused for a moment and looked round him at the masses of black stones with which the sides of the mountain were covered, and then began resolutely to ascend. He had hardly gone four steps when he heard the sound of voices around him, although not another creature was in sight. "'Who is this imbecile?' cried some. "'Stop him at once!' "'Kill him!' shrieked others. "'Help! Robbers! Murderers! Help! Help!' "'Oh, let him alone!' sneered another, and this was the most trying of all. "'He is such a beautiful young man. I am sure the bird in the cage must have been kept for him.' At first the prince took no heed at all to this clamor, but continued to press forward on his way. Unfortunately this conduct, instead of silencing the voices, only seemed to irritate them the more, and they arose with redoubled fury in front as well as behind. After some time he grew bewildered, his knees began to tremble, and finding himself in the act of falling, he forgot altogether the advice of the dervish. He turned to fly down the mountain and in one moment became a black stone. As may be imagined, Prince Pervez and his sister were all this time in the greatest anxiety, and consulted the magic knife not once but many times a day. Hitherto the blade had remained bright and spotless, but on the fatal hour on which Prince Baman and his horse were changed into black stones, large drops of blood appeared on the surface. "'Oh, my beloved brother!' cried the princess in horror, throwing the knife from her. "'I shall never see you again, and it is I who have killed you. Fool that I was to listen to the voice of that temptress, who probably was not speaking the truth. What are the talking bird and the singing tree to me in comparison with you, passionately though I long for them?' Prince Pervez's grief at his brother's loss was not less than that of Princess Parazad, but he did not waste his time on useless lamentations. "'My sister, why should you think the old woman was deceiving you about these treasures, and what would have been her object in doing so? No, no, our brother must have met his death by some accident or want of precaution, and to-morrow I will start on the same quest.' Terrified at the thought that she might lose her only remaining brother, the princess entreated him to give up his project, but he remained firm. Before setting out, however, he gave her a chaplet of a hundred pearls, and said, When I am absent, tell this over daily for me. But if you should find that the beads stick, so that they will not slip one after the other, you will know that my brother's fate has befallen me. Still, we must hope for better luck." Then he departed, and on the twentieth day of his journey fell in with the dervish on the same spot as Prince Baman had met him, and began to question him as to the place where the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water were to be found. 
as in the case of his brother, the dervish tried to make him give up his project, and even told him that only a few weeks since a young man, bearing a strong resemblance to himself, had passed that way but had never come back again. That holy dervish, replied Prince Pervez, was my elder brother, who is now dead, though how he died I cannot say. He is changed into a black stone, answered the dervish, like all the rest who have gone on the same errand, and you will become one likewise if you are not more careful in following my directions. Then he charged the prince, as he valued his life, to take no heed of the clamor of voices that would pursue him up the mountain, and handing him a ball from the bag, which still seemed to be half full, he sent him on his way. When Prince Pervez reached the foot of the mountain, he jumped from his horse and paused for a moment to recall the instructions the dervish had given him. Then he strode boldly on, but had scarcely gone five or six paces when he was startled by a man's voice that seemed closer to his ear, exclaiming, "'Stop, rash fellow, and let me punish your audacity!' This outrage entirely put the dervish's advice out of the prince's head. He drew his sword and turned to avenge himself, but almost before he had realized that there was nobody there, he and his horse were two black stones." Not a morning had passed since Prince Pervez had ridden away without Princess Parazad telling her beads, and at night she even hung them round her neck so that if she woke she could assure herself at once of her brother's safety. She was in the very act of moving them through her fingers at the moment that the prince fell a victim to his impatience, and her heart sank when the first pearl remained fixed in its place. However, she had long made up her mind what she would do in such a case— and the following morning the princess, disguised as a man, set out for the mountain. As she had been accustomed to riding from her childhood, she managed to travel as many miles daily as her brothers had done, and it was, as before, on the twentieth day that she arrived at the place where the dervish was sitting. "'Good dervish,' she said politely, "'will you allow me to rest by you for a few moments? "'And perhaps you will be so kind as to tell me "'if you have ever heard of a talking bird, "'a singing tree, and some golden water "'that are to be found somewhere near this.' "'Madam,' replied the dervish, "'for in spite of your manly dress, "'your voice betrays you. "'I shall be proud to serve you in any way I can, "'but may I ask the purpose of your question?' "'Good dervish,' answered the princess, "'I have heard such glowing descriptions of these three things "'that I cannot rest till I possess them.' "'Madam,' said the dervish, "'they are far more beautiful than any description, "'but you seem ignorant of all the difficulties that stand in your way, "'or you would hardly have undertaken such an adventure. "'Give it up, I pray you, and return home, "'and do not ask me to help you to a cruel death.' "'Holy Father,' answered the princess, "'I come from far, and I should be in despair "'if I turned back without having attained my object. "'You have spoken of difficulties. "'Tell me, I entreat you, what they are, "'so that I may know if I can overcome them, "'or see if they are beyond my strength.' "'So the dervish repeated his tale "'and dwelt more firmly than before "'on the clamor of the voices, "'the horrors of the black stones, "'which were once living men,' and the difficulties of climbing the mountain, and pointed out that the chief means of success was never to look behind till you had the cage in your grasp. "'As far as I can see,' said the princess, "'the first thing is not to mind the tumult of the voices that follow you till you reach the cage, and then never to look behind. 
As to this, I think I have enough self-control to look straight before me. But as it is quite possible that I might be frightened by the voices, as even the boldest men have been, I will stop up my ears with cotton, so that, let them make as much noise as they like, I shall hear nothing. Madam, cried the dervish, out of all the number who have asked me the way to the mountain, you are the first who has ever suggested such a means of escaping the danger. It is possible that you may succeed, but all the same the risk is great. Good dervish, answered the princess, I feel in my heart that I shall succeed, and it only remains for me to ask you the way I am to go. Then the dervish saw that it would be useless to say more, and he gave her the ball which she flung before her. The first thing the princess did on arriving at the mountain was to stop her ears with cotton, and then, making up her mind which was the best way to go, she began her ascent. In spite of the cotton, some echoes of the voices reached her ears, but not so as to trouble her. Indeed, though they grew louder and more insulting the higher she climbed, the princess only laughed, and said to herself that she certainly would not let a few rough words stand between her and the goal. At last she perceived in the distance the cage and the bird, whose voice joined itself in tones of thunder to those of the rest. "'Return! return! Never dare to come near me!' At the sight of the bird, the princess hastened her steps, and without vexing herself at the noise, which by this time had grown deafening, she walked straight up to the cage, and seizing it, she said, "'Now, my bird, I have got you, and I shall take good care that you do not escape.' As she spoke, she took the cotton from her ears, for it was needed no longer. "'Brave lady,' answered the bird, "'do not blame me for having joined my voice to those who did their best to preserve my freedom.' Although confined in a cage, I was content with my lot. But if I must become a slave, I could not wish for a nobler mistress than one who has shown so much constancy, and from this moment I swear to serve you faithfully. Some day you will put me to the proof, for I know who you are better than you do yourself. Meanwhile, tell me what I can do, and I will obey you. "'Bird,' replied the princess, who was filled with a joy that seemed strange to herself when she thought that the bird had cost her the lives of both her brothers, "'Bird, let me first thank you for your good will, and then let me ask you where the golden water is to be found.' The bird described the place, which was not far distant, and the princess filled a small silver flask that she had brought with her for the purpose. She then returned to the cage and said, "'Bird, there is still something else.' "'Where shall I find the singing tree?' "'Behind you, in that wood,' replied the bird, and the princess wandered through the wood until a sound of the sweetest voices told her she had found what she sought. But the tree was tall and strong, and it was hopeless to think of uprooting it. "'You need not do that,' said the bird, when she had returned to ask counsel. "'Break off a twig and plant it in your garden, and it will take root and root grow into a magnificent tree.' When the princess Parizade held in her hands the three wonders promised her by the old woman, she said to the bird, "'All that is not enough. It was owing to you that my brothers became black stones. I cannot tell them from the mass of others, but you must know, and point them out to me, I beg you, for I wish to carry them away.' For some reason that the princess could not guess, these words seemed to displease the bird, and he did not answer. The princess waited a moment, and then continued in severe tones, "'Have you forgotten that you yourself said that you are my slave to do my bidding, and also that your life is in my power?' 
"'No, I have not forgotten,' replied the bird. "'But what you ask is very difficult. "'However, I will do my best. "'If you look around,' he went on, "'you will see a pitcher standing near. "'Take it, and as you go down the mountain, "'scatter a little of the water it contains "'over every black stone, "'and you will soon find your two brothers.' "'Princess Parizade took the pitcher, "'and carrying with her besides the cage, "'the twig, and the flask,' returned down the mountainside. At every black stone she stopped and sprinkled it with water, and as the water touched it, the stone instantly became a man. When she suddenly saw her brothers before her, her delight was mixed with astonishment. "'Why, what are you doing here?' she cried. "'We have been asleep,' they said. "'Yes,' returned the princess, "'but without me your sleep would probably have lasted till the day of judgment.' "'Have you forgotten that you came here in search of the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water, and the black stones that were heaped up along the road? Look round, and see if there is one left. These gentlemen, and yourselves, and all your horses, were changed into these stones, and I have delivered you by sprinkling you with water from this pitcher. As I could not return home without you, even though I had gained the prizes on which I had set my heart, I forced the talking bird to tell me how to break the spell.' On hearing these words, Prince Baman and Prince Perviz understood all they owed their sister, and the knights who stood by declared themselves her slaves, and ready to carry out her wishes. But the princess, while thanking them for their politeness, explained that she wished for no company but that of her brothers, and that the rest were free to go where they should. So, so saying, the princess mounted her horse, and declining on to allow even Prince Baman to carry the cage with the talking bird, she entrusted him with the branch of the singing tree, while Prince Perviz took care of the flask containing the golden water. Then they rode away, followed by the knights and gentlemen, who begged to be permitted to escort them. It had been the intention of the party to stop and tell their adventures to the dervish, but they found to their sorrow that he was dead, whether from old age or whether from the feeling that his task was done, they never knew. As they continued their road, their numbers grew daily smaller, for the knights turned off one by one to their own homes, and only the brothers and sister finally drew up at the gate of the palace. The princess carried the cage straight into the garden, and as soon as the bird began to sing, nightingales, larks, thrushes, finches, and all sorts of other birds mingled their voices in chorus. The branch she planted in a corner near the house, and in a few days it had grown into a great tree. As for the golden water, it was poured into a great marble basin specially prepared for it, and it swelled and bubbled and then shot up into the air in a fountain twenty feet high. The fame of these wonders soon spread abroad, and people came from far and near to see and admire. After a few days, Prince Baman and Prince Perviz fell back into their ordinary way of life, and passed most of their time hunting. One day it happened that the Sultan of Persia was also hunting in the same direction, and not wishing to interfere with his sport, the young men, on hearing the noise of the hunt approaching, prepared to retire. But, as luck would have it, they turned into the very path down which the sultan was coming. They threw themselves from their horses and prostrated themselves to the earth, but the sultan was curious to see their faces, and commanded them to rise. End of chapter 39 Recording by Dale, Tucson, Arizona